Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Manzel, joined by Bruce Feldman, and we're going to be joined in a little bit by Barton Simmons from 24-7 Sports for some recruiting talk, some European recruiting talk. But Bruce, much lighter weekend of spring games this past weekend. Did you happen to catch either Georgia or Oregon's? I did, but not live. I was able to flip around. I caught some of some of it. I don't know. To me, the most interesting stuff that happened this week was more related towards some off the field stuff. But and we'll actually get into the or, probably the most noteworthy thing about the Oregon spring game a little later on with Barton, and that's related to the top quarterback recruit in the country. What caught your eye in, in anything you saw, though? Well, you know, the most interesting thing about Georgia's spring game was the officiating. A bunch of our media friends were invited to the guest officials and got some screen time. We saw Andy Staples, Ralph Russo, Dennis Dodd, some TV people, Todd Blackledge, Sean McDonough, our friend Molly McGrath. They were all officials. And I just don't know why anybody would want to do that job in the first place. Like all you... You mean actually do the job? Actually, like why would anybody want to be an official? It's incredibly hard as those people found out. Nobody's going to compliment you on doing a good job, but they are going to boo you slash threaten you slash call your place of business and harass you if you mess up. Actually, the author Michael Lewis has a podcast series right now about the he, uh, the first episode was about NBA refs and how like the players are, the relationship between NBA refs and players is starting to get really nasty while at, at a time when NBA refs have never been more accurate. So I don't know like what, what would have to what streak would you have to have in you to be like, you know what? I think it would be cool to do this job. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting story in itself. If you were to talk to people and say, why do you like doing it so much? Because I know for a lot of places, that's a... They love it. That's a Well, it's also, but there's a shortage of people who can do it, much less do it well. So I don't know the answer to that. I really the, don't. Everybody's the, wired differently. And the and the way people you get criticized, you know, there's just, with social media, it's just so amplified as opposed to a previous generation. But anyway... Look, I think we can agree. Georgia is very, very, very talented. Jake Fromm, who we know is very good, he doesn't need to prove himself in the spring game, had a pretty low completion percentage, and it's because they have guys like Tyson Campbell, five-star cornerback a year ago, now has a year under his belt, and other guys like that who are out there defending their receivers. So I just, you know, I think people went very quickly from being really impressed with Kirby Smart that he got them to the national title game two years ago to now skeptical because uh, of the way he blew the Alabama game in part. So, like, I feel like people are getting a little tired of hearing all about how talented Georgia is and they want to actually see them produce this year. And I think produce means beat Alabama and win the SEC, go to the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, look, and the way the year finished, the final score was, was close, but... Again, this was a team that got blown out at LSU and got handled by a Texas team that I don't think anybody looked at Texas and said, okay, they're a team that would have won anything in the playoff, right? So I think you're right. I think this is definitely, I don't want to say it's a put up or shut up. That's not fair, you know, but and this is a case where the recruiting rankings are pretty hefty. And, you know, right now, this is not the right analogy, but it, it's the one that popped into my head, which is Charlie Weiss got a humongous contract, not because he won anything but because he almost beat USC. That was the best thing that he did. Whereas with Georgia, I feel like so much of the weight they have beyond the recruiting rankings is because they went toe-to-toe with Alabama more as much as anything else, right? That's the measuring stick. Correct. In fact, my written mailbag earlier this year, somebody asked, you know, as outrageous as this sounds, is it fair to, given how he's recruited, that he should be expected to win a national title in the next two years? And that, well... A lot of goes into that, but I think, yeah, I think that is fair given that the number one recruiting classes and, I mean, they could be starting five stars at almost every position on defense. Nolan Smith, I think ESPN's number one recruit in the country last year. That can't uh, be right. They're going to, they can't start 11 five stars on defense. I was exaggerating a little bit. A bunch of five stars. Yeah. Nolan Smith, the ESPN's number one recruit in the country last year. Seth Emerson, our Georgia writer, has his post-spring depth chart out today, and he's already considered a starting outside linebacker. So, Well, uh, and also, N'Kobe Dean, I think, was just, for a lot of coaches uh, last year, was as, as talented a recruit, and he's an inside linebacker, a kid from Mississippi, huge battle, and Georgia won that race to get him. 
Uh, he's a guy a lot of people expect to come in and be an impact guy as well. I know, you know, obviously they lost Roquan Smith and weren't as good as, you know, at that, on defense, certainly weren't as good there. So those guys have a chance to really come in and make an impact, no doubt. Oregon, I think the guy everybody there wanted to see was Jawan Johnson, the Penn State grad transfer receiver who I don't really understand how he kind of fell out of the rotation there. He was he was off to a great start last season. But I think there were some challenges like with that. consistency uh, with him. Also, look, there was a uh, – I, I think one of the things that, that probably happened there was Josh Gaddis was really regarded as one of the best receiver coaches in the country, left to go to Alabama. The receiving coach they had there lasted one year, uh, and then they made a change. You know, uh, Gerard Parker is there, has taken over at Penn State. But I think Juwan Johnson, who looks like a power forward, I remember going down there and seeing He was one of the most impressive kids you'd see at Penn State. And sometimes the production didn't match. But they got to replace Dylan Mitchell, who was really the closest, was a go-to guy at Oregon. And after him, they didn't really have anything else. Now they're excited about some of their young receivers plus Juwan Johnson. That You're talking about expectations. There's pretty sky-high expectations for Justin Herbert and Oregon in 2019. But before we go get off that, let me ask you this. So you said it. You said, the, you know, is it going to be a disappointment if, if Kirby Smart and Georgia don't win a national title by 2020 season within the next two years. Give me a, uh, a percent chance that Georgia, between either this year or next year, wins the national title. If I said that chance is 25%, would you say higher or lower is your expectation? Can I say, like, push? I think that's, like, almost the exact right number to say. Because you've still got Clemson. Clemson's not going anywhere. Alabama's not going anywhere. And obviously the Alabama thing is the biggest obstacle for Georgia. And then, you know, you can get into the national title game and, you know, that Tua pass two years ago could have been a difference. They, we might already be talking about them having won a national championship. So this is not a very easy thing to accomplish, even if you've got all the players and even if you get into the game itself. I wouldn't consider it a disappointment if they at least make it to the national championship game. I think the disappointment will be if the same thing that happened last year happens the next two years because then it feels like you're not achieving your potential yeah i mean when you look at their schedule right now they have notre dame who has to go there i think notre dame will be good but then after that i think florida is going to be good and uh but they get texas a&m there they have to go to to auburn i mean to me it's the the sec east still isn't because i think tennessee is declined so much where it was you know 15 years ago i think that's changed the dynamic a lot but, um, you know, things are stacked in their favor, definitely, to get to the SEC title game. It's just a question of, I don't, maybe next year, in 2020, and the reason why I say that is because there's a really good chance Alabama will be breaking in a new quarterback. And it's not to say they won't have a lot of talent around whoever that is, whether it's to his younger brother or not, I don't know. But that's the part where I think, okay, maybe then you have a chance. I imagine Alabama will lose Jerry Judy. They'll probably lose some other you know, guys who will be able to go. So maybe maybe 2020 is the year. If I'm a Georgia fan, I'm circling it. And that's why, unfortunately for them, Clemson's still going to have Trevor Lawrence. And they're still going to have a bunch of dudes. But Don't, don't tell them they have to wait until 2020. They want it this year. There was some pretty significant uh, transfer portal news, or as I like to call it, the portal, last week. So we saw, you know, there was a, a lot of spring games that weekend. And then... Right after spring games is usually when coaches meet with players for basically exit interviews or, or you know, one-on-one. Exit, interview. exit interviews, yeah. Yeah, spring exit interviews. Uh, I'm not saying like exit interviews from the program. But a little, you know, talk about what, what expectations are for the rest of the offseason. And then we've got, uh, coming out of that, Tommy Stevens, who uh, I think most many people expected to finally be Penn State's starter this year after waiting his turn for several years. He's in the portal now. Matthew Baldwin at Ohio State, who, if you watch their spring game, I would not have said like there was a massive difference yet between him and Justin Fields. Justin Fields is obviously the much more touted guy. He's in the transfer portal. These Matt are... Fink from USC, he's in the transfer portal. Yeah, well, Matt Fink, I don't think, was necessarily expected to have a realistic shot at the job, right? Whereas Tommy Stevens... I don't think I don't think Matt ba- Matthew Baldwin had a realistic shot at the probably not. But Tommy I think Stevens, you're kidding yourself if you think he was. People thought he was going to overtake Justin Fields. Probably not. Tommy Stevens, unclear what what caused this at this time. Uh, I don't know if he maybe expected 
if he wanted to hear them say, oh, yeah, you're definitely going to be. He's been out with a foot injury since last year. So Sean Clifford got a lot of reps, obviously, in the spring. He looked good in the spring game. So He's think, talented. He's talented. And the kid behind him, Will Levis, who's a redshirt freshman, he has the best arm of all of them. I mean, you talk to people inside Penn State. They think he may throw it better than any kid they've ever seen. And that doesn't mean just because he's got a huge arm and he's pretty athletic. That word toolsy, that doesn't mean he reads defenses great or any of those other intangible things. But he definitely wowed some people when he got there. So I know people like Sean Clifford. It's just I think a lot of people assumed that it was going to be a slam dunk. That was like a guarantee that Tommy Stevens was going to be the guy. And I don't know if James Franklin and his staff and Ricky Ronnie were gonna were prepared to do that because I think they saw Sean Clifford as a guy who was coming on. So yeah, I don't know how you could uh, do that. How you could dismiss Sean Clifford after having a great spring? So I guess Tommy Stevens is tired of waiting. He wants the job. He's gonna go look for something. You and I were talking about this yesterday. There aren't that many schools out there at this point that you would point to and say if Tommy Stevens transfers here he'll probably be the starter next year well the tricky parts too and i've talked to some college coaches about this is they don't have a lot of them don't have the space for some of these guys even whether a grad transfer or not you still have to have initial like one of the things that i think probably confuses some people who are diehard college football fans is you look at like the two four twenty four seven commitment list or database and they only they don't list the only transfers they list are junior college transfers but the truth is, transfers from wherever, they count on your initial. So those, you know, do, did you sign enough or did you leave room in February? If you didn't, if you don't have space, you're kind of SOL on this deal. So that's the challenge. And I think, I'm not saying anyone on these specific kids, but there's a chance some of these kids who are, especially if they're quarterbacks, they may end up having to go to junior college if they Obviously, if they're not a if they're not a grad transfer and play there and then get re-recruited, I mean the key thing is to go somewhere where you can play and then you know figure it out later. Now, from what I had heard from about Matthew Baldwin was there was homesickness. I would imagine he would go back to Texas or at least close to Texas before he makes his next move. So you're saying if you sign a full class, and by the way, it's hard to keep track of this from year to year because you can back count uh, early enrollees and. Everybody signs a bunch of earlier enrollees now. But basically, if you sign a full class of 25 in February, uh, even after whoever you're going to back count, then, and suddenly some hot quarterback becomes available on the portal, you can't take him. If you don't have room, no. I mean, the reason why LSU, LSU last year had the 15th ranked class, you know, according to the websites, but that didn't count the kicker they had who won a bunch of games who came from like Assumption College or Joe Burrow. But they had room to do that. If you don't have the room on that end, you can't. You don't have the flexibility to just bring guys on. It's not a matter of oh, we're gonna you know even though we signed twenty five, we're gonna take four grad transfers. Yeah, I don't. Hope a bunch of kids quit. I don't think people. I think people assume that it's about the eight number eighty five, but it's also about that number twenty five. And because people because of the portal, it seemed like there were a lot more guys transferring in January and February than usual then, yeah, this next wave that always happens after spring football, after guys realize kind of where things stand, there's just there's not going to be enough spots for everybody. In terms of Ohio State and Matthew Baldwin, I think you know this is a fascinating window into the culture of the quarterback position now. A year ago, they had in that quarterback room Dwayne Haskins, who, who would have guessed at that time would turn pro early, uh, Joe Burrow, who soon left for LSU, and Tate Martell, who left for Miami. Now, the only guys left in that quarterback room are Justin Fields, who got there in January, and... Uh, Chris Chugnov. Chris who, Chug- I, a West Virginia Chugnov, guy transfer. Chugnov might have actually been there, though. I'm trying to remember when he transferred out of West Virginia. I don't know when he... You know, he was like a guy who I imagine... I don't know this for a fact, but I imagine could end up as a grad assistant down the road. And so there's nobody... But the point is, there's nobody left in the quarterback room at Ohio State that Ohio State recruited out of high school. No, I mean, and, and look, Isn't that if, crazy? If, you were to ask, if you were to ask diehard Ohio State fans what you would rather have, would you rather have three for the, three, you know, those three kids? Now, Dwayne has to take out of it because he had a, a record-setting year and he'll probably go be a first-round pick. But those other guys, 
it's just crazy how that's the dynamic that changes where you just see like a level of attrition where guys just want to they don't want to sit and they want change and i think that's just the that's just the way everything is now with a lot of especially at that position chris talking off by the way didn't get there till august of last year okay so, so they're completely changed over since last august well think about how crazy that all is i mean we're thinking this you know urban meyer was the head coach i mean you know obviously that ryan day was still the offensive coordinator and everything but just i mean that is a lot a lot of turnover there so how concerned are you if you're ohio state right now if Justin Fields either doesn't progress the way you need him to or gets hurt, that's it. You're down to chugging off, and that's it. I'm not worried about the first part. I, I mean, I have more confidence in Justin Fields being really, really good than I do in a bunch of guys who already started. Like, I think he's going to be really, really good. And I think Ryan Day will help that. And I think they got a lot of receivers to make that work. I mean, I think people are going to go, man, he's really special after they get to see him. It may not be week one, but it may be by the time we get into November. The part I would worry about is he's a big kid, but he does run and quarterbacks sometimes get banged around. And that's the challenge is once you get the number two, here's here's an interesting kind of aside. And I'm going to throw it at you just kind of talk about it. So was talking to an NFL coach I know I had, who I uh, got together with a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about backup quarterbacks in the NFL. And they were talking about a, a guy who I was like, well, this guy's not very accurate. You know, why do people even covet him if he's like not accurate enough to be a good NFL quarterback? And he's like, well, in the NFL, if your starter goes down, you're hoping, can this guy, at least if he goes down for like a month, can this guy get us to two and two? Because if that's the case, then you can still make the playoffs. But if your starter goes down in the NFL, you know, the Nick Foles example is the, the aberration. But chances are, or, you know, in the case of Tom Brady, certainly years ago, but you're probably your season's shot. But it's like, even if a guy is more talented, you're like, no, we'd rather have the guy who's good in the room, chemistry-wise, maybe isn't as threatening to the starter, whatever. It's just the dynamic works. And I think that is a... You know, an interesting difference maybe between that and where you are with college, because you just don't have kids. Granted, they're not it's not a job. We're not paid to be a backup in college. But by and large, most of these guys are not going to be patient. They're going to expect for whatever reason that, all right, they either want a guarantee that they're going to start or something else. And I think that's what's changed. And I'm not saying this is one of the ills of society. I'm not trying to make it a bigger picture, but I just think that. If you're a, if you're a college football coach, this is a different dynamic than it probably was. And I don't think this is a necessarily just because of the portal. The portal has just put more of a spotlight on it because now the portal is a catchy term and we write stories about it. And it's it, it's up on Twitter and everything like that. But I just think this has kind of been building towards this. Yeah, like I've said before, the game it's not the portal that's changing things dramatically. It's the NCA suddenly granting instant uh, or immediate eligibility waivers. Uh, to just about anybody that's that's the big motivator well i think more than anything else beyond that i think what it really has to do with is kids just don't want to wait they just but that's been the case for a long time it has been but Stu, if you look back and i'm trying to remember i had a stat in the beginning of my qb book and this is five years ago or so there was a, a ton of attrition with quarterbacks like this isn't anything different you may be seeing guys at other positions transfer but I mean, I also think that this has gotten a little, people are a little over their skis when they're like, yeah, automatically you transfer, you're going to be eligible. I mean, we see examples of guys getting granted. We don't see a bunch of others that didn't of the, you know, the, the kid who was at Navy who transferred to Notre Dame, he set out, you know, like there's examples of kids who still aren't getting approved. I mean, I, you know, it's, I not had a, a, it's not a guarantee. Yeah, I wrote this for Fox maybe three or four years ago that among four and, and five-star quarterbacks, the transfer rate is 50%. You know, guys don't finish their careers at the school they started unless they get to start and start pretty quickly. Um, but what I, I think what we're seeing now, it's just totally anecdotal, is more high-profile guys, right? It's one thing if the guy has been the third-string quarterback for two years. It's another if the guy is Justin Fields. Uh, Tate Martell obviously has a big name from recruiting his hype as a recruit. Ohio State, by the way, I'll just get circling back. Ohio State does not have a quarterback coming in in this class. So I. Right, because also, by the way, 
related to Justin Fields, the kid they thought they were going to get, and he ended up signing with Georgia. And he looked pretty talented in that spring game, Dwan Mathis. So clearly they're going to want to get a grad transfer in there. Now the issue there is going to be that the really good grad transfers want to go somewhere where they'll start. So I have to find a grad transfer who just really wants to who wants to be Chris for Ohio State. Yeah, exactly. Who wants to be Chris Chuggins. Exactly. Let's get to our guest, shall we? Yes. All right, Stu. And now we're pleased to be joined by our guest today. He is Barton Simmons, director of scouting for 24-7 Sports. And Barton had a really fascinating story that he went and did the legwork on and went over to really get a deep dive into something that a bunch of us have touched on a little bit, but nowhere into the detail that he did, which is kind of the boom in European-born and bred football recruits and prospects and that pipeline. Barton, thanks for joining us on the Audible today. Of course, yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks for letting me hop on. Okay, so I want to start with this. So there's been kids who you know who've signed in the last couple of years. Michigan has has some some other prominent schools. Certainly Georgia Tech just you know has a few. Jeff Collins has really gotten mm-hmm. deep into this. When you go over uh, to Amsterdam, when you go over to Europe, what surprised you the most about this trip that you took? Yeah, I think, I mean, for one, I, I kind of dug into the numbers actually after the trip. It felt like a lot of kids were starting to, to sign, but I hadn't really done the deep dive. And I was a little bit nervous about what I would find because I was scared there wasn't going to be really the movement that it felt like. But there really is. I mean, between 2010 and 2016, two Europeans signed with um, major college programs without going junior college, without going over spending the seniors or junior season in, in, in America in high school. And that number was jumped all the way. It was two in the 2017 class alone. Then there were six in 2018, eight in 2019. It feels like there's going to be even more in 2020. So I think the movement has taken place. And so I, I went over there to, to cover this camp and just sort of see what, kind of what it was like over there. I think, you know, my biggest takeaway is, I mean, there's a few, but, but one is the thing that I liked the most about the trip. And I was hoping, you know, who knows what kind of anecdotal stuff I was going to get. I, I just wanted to get an interesting story, but I came away just so invigorated and by just the energy around football with those players. Because I think if you think about it, we really take for granted, you know, what the process is and the path to play football in America. I mean, I played college football. I, I went to you know, played junior high football, went to my high school, you know, had football practice after school. We had our coach right there. Colleges came to visit me, got recruited. Wham, bam, here I am, you know, going to going to college. But over there, football is a club sport. No one really plays it. If you're going to pursue it, you have to pursue it really individually. You have to pursue it outside of, of school. You have to, to sort of seek out other like-minded football aspiring guys. And, and it just sort of, there's this total loneliness of of sort of embarking on this football journey over there that is unique to to Europe relative to America where we just sort of you know just sort of stay the course and you got a chance and so i think that 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 sort of unique journey has driven guys over there to be just so passionate about it and it was just so fun being around them and and just seeing their eyes light up when they talk to somebody like me who sort of lives in the football world and is very engaged in it they want to talk about everything. They want to talk NFL draft. They want to talk our rankings. They want to talk college football game day experiences. You know, they wanted to sort of pick my brain against guys that I'd seen and, and, and they want to talk their own experiences. And it was just sort of this real innocent, pure passion for the game. And I think that's, you know, something that the colleges have sort of dialed into the, the, the programs that feel like there is value recruiting Europe, I think one of the things they like is, yeah, we might be getting a kid that's really raw. We might be getting a kid that, that's got a ways to go, but we're going to get a kid probably that's really coachable that is going to be really passionate and dialed in because of, I mean, all the sacrifice they've already made to, to get to that point. So it, it was a cool experience to just sort of see that uh, kind of light in their eyes, for, for lack of a better term, and sort of the, the journey they're on in football. Barton, I'm sure there's not one easy answer for this, but why now? Why in 2018, 2019, are you seeing this spike in kids signing with signing, you know, straight with FBS? Well, and Bruce knows this this guy, Brandon Collier, is out there who played at UMass and played a little bit and and yeah, you know, maybe had a cup of coffee in the NFL, maybe his practice squad or something. I'm not sure how 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 deep he his NFL experience was, but ultimately ended up playing 
some, maybe even in the CFL, but then played in one of these sort of semi-pro leagues in Europe and just sort of stayed over there and has tried to sort of stimulate the, the football economy out there. And I, I think, because cause look, there's always been European players that have played college football. What's different now is they're not going to play junior college p- football first. They're not going to some boarding school first. They're, they're actually being recruited from Europe. And I think what's been missing has been the kind of the vehicle, the, the connector. And I mean, Brandon Collier is one guy, but he really does have his hands involved in a lot of these, whatever it is, 16 guys over the last two years or three years that have, have, have made it to, to FBS uh, over from Europe. He's, you know, alongside a lot of them and connecting coaches. And, and I think that has driven, a, a you know, a, a, the beginning of a movement and it's drawn coaches over there. And as they're over there, they may check out other players. And so I think, I mean, this whole thing is self-perpetuating. The more guys go over and play in Europe, the more of them have success, the more guys over there are going to aspire to do the same, the more college coaches have reason to get over there. It's, it's, all, it's all snowballs and builds on itself, but you have to get a little bit of a spark to get it going. And I think for the first time in ever, as far as I know, there's, a, there's at least a little bit of a spark. And to have guys, you know, to, to, to have it validated by places like Michigan – where Julius Welshoff is, is a second-team defensive end, has a chance to be a pretty good player, to have it validated by places like Penn State that's actually going over there for a, for a clinic to, to kind of evaluate prospects over the next, uh, I think later this, actually maybe this week, and to have it validated you know, by you know, across the board, FPS to FCS, it's, uh, I think it's driven more kids to engage, and, and I think it's just sort of stimulated that whole operation over there. One thing, Stu, that I, I think really you see and you hear from talking to coaches, I, I don't know, it was probably about 10 years ago, Margus Hunt, who was this shot putter, yeah. throw, you know, track thrower from, I think, uh, maybe Estonia. I'm trying to remember where Margus was from originally before he right. went to Dallas. He goes to SMU and the freak of all freaks, right? And so you have these super explosive athletes, some of them with track backgrounds, some of them with unique backgrounds. Julius, I remember, was like this big mogul skier do crazy stuff. That's the kid that that uh, Barton was talking about who's at Michigan now. But so you'd have some of these guys who a lot of them really were track background guys. And I remember telling a coach that I knew who was a group of five coach, I was like, you ought to go to like the junior Olympics of some like track meet in Europe and sit there and you'd find tight ends and defensive ends. And now whether they have, you know, some of the other skills you need to play to play football. But you think about like BYU had Ziggy Ansa. Now he was from a different part of the world, but super explosive athlete. And he's turned out to be, you know, a pretty dynamic pass rusher in the NFL. So I think what, you know, what also what Brandon Collier did, the guy who's over in Europe who played for Dom Brown at UMass, he got guys to come on these on this trip and they go hit, you know, 15 schools. So people would be able to see him in person. And that's how you got Virginia. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Barton, I think they signed three last year, including a quarterback yep. this past year. Right. So what I yep. loved about uh, Barton's story here was, you know, uh, we at the athletic and I know even when I was at SI, we, you know, I did some stories on, on Brandon Collier's organization and some of these kids, but what was missing in those stories was the culture piece of it. And so there's, you know, there's parts of the story where you get, wow. And, and Barton's in this, this is his business more than mine. And certainly yours do on the recruiting. You're talking to recruits all the time over here. So what I was fascinated by was just how different, yeah, we get that, you know, they still, they want to know where DK Metcalf's going to get drafted, just like probably kids over here and the rankings are fascinated by, but culturally, what do you think is different about maybe the perspective, the kids who grow up over there, not just how they train, but also whether, how worldly they are and, and, and mm-hmm. the difference you see compared to what you deal with typically, not with all kids over here, but certainly, you know, right. what you see mostly. Well, look, I think again, there's a, there's a self-selecting element to, to it over there in that if you are someone that is pursuing football, then you are a self-starter, you are mature enough to understand some of the sacrifices you have to make. You know, a lot of these kids, I mean, there are 10 different countries represented at this camp out that. These guys were all getting themselves there by themselves. I think, and, and I also think, and I don't know if this is just the sample size that, that I saw or whether this is European, this is consistent across sort of Europe more broadly, 
but there, I think there is sort of a, a worldly is a good word, a maturity to them, a perspective that I think is unique as opposed to some of the more, you know, some, some of the high school kids here that just, I mean, it just, you, you, they feel less mature at times when you talk to them and, and less, and, and I think have a little bit less perspective. And, and when you talk to those European kids and, and another element at play too, is a lot of these guys are 19, 20, even some of them are 21 years old. And that's, that's something that could be looked at in a negative, how tapped out are they? But when you have someone that's 20 years old, 19 years old, that is making sacrifices for to, to pursue something really vigorously, I think that they're coming over ready to work. And and I just thought you could have some real deep conversations with these guys that is that would be really rare to have with a high school kid over in America. And I think look, when you talk to guys even one or two years into college, there's a there's often a maturity that has developed just from them kind of living on their own and, and being away from home. And I just feel like a lot of the guys in Europe, that maturity has already hit. Because a lot of it, a lot of the process for them is away from home, uh, is is real individual and and sort of self-starting. And because of that, you just get a different brand of, of person, a different style of, of, of communicator. Let's pivot a little bit since we got you. I, I did want to ask you one of the big stories in, in recruiting around the country this year is there's going to be a big recruiting battle that's going on right now between Oregon and Clemson. Correct me if there's somebody else in the picks, but mix for the top uh, 247's top quarterback, DJ Galele, mm-hmm. who visited Oregon, met two of his idols in Marcus Mariota and Jeremiah Masoli at the Duck Spring game. How do you see this battle playing out? Yeah, I mean, this is, it's a national recruiting battle. I think Oregon's emerged as sort of a, one of the strongest contenders in the West Coast. But here's what's fascinating is as we sit here today, uh, and I know he just got back, just got off a, a weekend visit to, uh, to Oregon and, and visited their spring game. And his team, one of his teammates, Chris Hudson, a wide receiver, committed to Oregon. And, you know, they've recruited really well at St. John Bosco uh, the year in 2019. But this is going to be one where I'm really surprised if he doesn't end up at Clemson. That's a scary thought when you are looking at the landscape of college football and Clemson's coming off this, this run and they're in the midst of another current run with Trevor Lawrence at quarterback. We got two more years of him. By the time his run is over, if DJ Uyangalele commits to Clemson, then we're just going to have him backfill and, and be the next man up at Clemson. So it's a, uh, I mean, th- things are really rolling right now to the extent, and even for a program that's been recruiting at a high level, this is a next, the, sort of the next tier up that Clemson has been recruiting at. So, I mean, that's that's a little bit of a scary thought considering how well they're already playing and the, the lineage that they have working at the quarterback position for the rest of the ACC and, and really the rest of the country in a lot of ways. You may you may be hoping that uh, – Oregon can can sneak up and, and steal this one, but there's a pretty good foundation in place for for Clemson to be able to land this kid. Man, Oregon fans are going to be who are listening to this podcast are going to be crushed to hear that. I know they are they are really really holding out hope for this guy, but that would not surprise me. And well, look, he could know. he could go play right away at Oregon after Herbert leaves, where he'd probably have to sit a year with with Lawrence. Though, do you think that could? could be a factor or he's going to say, Hey, I'll sit the first year, learn behind him. And he's not going to redshirt. I wouldn't think. Cause those usually these kids talented enough where he's a three and out also, or probably thinks he's a three and out. So. Yeah. He's um, you know, he sat his freshman year at St. John Bosco. Uh, and I know that sounds like maybe not a big deal, but that was a kid that we ranked him as a top 100 kid in the country, even playing on his freshman team, because it was so obvious that that was his, his skill level, his talent level. And so I think he's been a big picture guy from the beginning in his recruitment. I doubt that this is the type of kid that's going to have to play right away, especially if he's going into a situation at Clemson where there's a very real sort of foundation in place, proven method to where, you know, that, that, you know, he can find success. And so I don't think that that's going to be a deal breaker. And, and again, we'll, I think we'll get an answer this spring one way or the other, but, I just think Clemson's done such a good job in that one that I'll be a little bit surprised if that's not where he lands. All right, and Barton, we happen to be getting you on the day that the number one recruit in in 24-7's uh, rankings for 2020 commits. So good timing that we have you on. Tell us what we need to know. 
Yeah, Brian Brzee, he's uh, he's committing. In fact, I'm recording this kind of late morning in my time. He'll be committing here in the next hour and a half or so. And, and if it would be a major shock if he is not also, this is going to be kind of hard for people to swallow, but, but he'll be a Clemson guy as well. I mean, I, I expect him to pick Clemson. He's the number one player in the country. Uh, he is 6'5", 290 pounds, scores 25 points in you know, in basketball, he's he's a you know, a four nine forty guy. In football, he has you know plays doesn't play competition that can can really present much of a challenge for him on the field. He checks every box: defensive ends, defensive tackle, likely at the next level, and will will sort of add to that ridiculous defensive line lineage. Speaking of, of strong Clemson lineages in in Clemson, South Carolina, so. If Clemson doesn't land the number one class in the country, I'll buy y'all both a steak dinner. There is, there's no chance that they don't end up number one with the way they're rolling. And, and like I said, I think they end up getting DJ Uyangalule as well, but that's not that's not a done deal yet. But there is a lot, even beyond Brian Brzee and, and DJ, there's a lot of big names in the top 20 or 30 in our rankings that are, are leaning Clemson's way. So it, it could be a scary good year for Clemson. Which is worth um, talking about because – you know, Clemson does well in recruiting. They get five-star guys like Trevor Lawrence. We actually had somebody write into our mailbag, I want to say a couple months ago, who was curious why they don't do better. Like why they would be, you know, they've had classes in the last four years where they were 10th or 12th or, or you know, not not doing what Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State do. So it's not like they were lacking for talent by any means, but are we now seeing them take it to even another level where now they can have the number one class in the country? Yeah, so there's two there's two things at play there. One is Clemson does a, such a good job of retaining players, of not losing them to attrition, of of not running guys off, that they don't often have full classes to work with. They've got to take 16, 17 guys in, in, in multiple years in a row, and so that 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 often lends to them not being at the very top of the rankings like Alabama or Georgia or Ohio State or some of the others. The other factor at play is they're willing. They'll always get their handful of five stars, but they're also really willing to take sort of team guys. Locker lock rooms is the wrong word, but but guys that fit their culture, um, guys that often end up being really good players, but maybe don't have the NFL you know traits coming out of high school. This year, a lot of the guys with NFL traits coming out of high school seem to fit the culture too. So it's sort of this perfect storm of they've got the numbers, uh, the the right guys. Are, are the highly rated guys in terms of kind of fitting their system and fitting their culture and, and fitting into their building. And uh, it's going to be tough for anybody to top them, even including Nick Saban in Alabama this cycle. All right, Barton, we appreciate your time and all the expertise. We encourage you to follow Barton on Twitter at Barton Simmons. It's pretty easy. There's no other underscores or anything like that. He is the director of scouting for 247 Sports, and you can also see him on CBSSports.com, uh, CBS Sports Network as well. So, Barton, hopefully we'll have you down the road as we get closer to the early signing period. Absolutely. Guys, thanks a lot. appreciate you all having me. You want to get to the mailbag? Let's get to the mailbag. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Let's start with... Joe in Oxford, England. Hi, guys. Love the podcast and the work you've done with The Athletic. I was thinking the other day who the best head coach, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator combination in college football is. We talk a lot about who the best head coach is, and you have you guys have your rankings, but what about the coordinators? Have you given thought to this? You know, I'll be honest. I, I'm sorry I didn't because you sent me this last <laughs> night, and I honestly okay. was... Nope. You know, here's the, no, here's no the challenge. Here, here, I'm going I'm to start with it, though. Okay. Is, you know, you have Jimbo Fisher, who has a really good defensive coordinator. But Jimbo Fisher is, it's a little like Gary Patterson, when you have a head coach who's really good, and they are like a de facto coordinator on top of it. Yeah, like, can you, can you say or Lincoln or, Riley? Yeah. Lincoln Riley is the OC at, at He's Oklahoma. the head coach and the OC, and Alex Grinch is the DC. That's a pretty good combo, but it's only two people. I thought about this. And I was racking my brain for a creative answer. And then I was like, is there really any other thing, any answer here other than Clemson? They're the national champion, the two, two of the last three national champions. And they but keep you have four guys. Back. You're going to include four guys, though, well, not yeah, three. But, but at the end of the day, it's Dabo. It's Brent Venables, who I think is probably the best defensive coordinator in college football. And Jeff Scott and Tony Elliott, who have produced Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence, Mike Williams, Travis Etienne, so on and so forth. 
I know that's not very original, but how, how are you going to top that group? No, I think it's it's hard because there's been you know if you have really good coordinators, chances are they go off and become head coaches. Yeah, exactly. you don't have them for very very long. And in the case of these guys, Brent Venables has definitely had opportunity, and the other coordinators have had at least group of five opportunity or some things where they're like, hey, we're not going to jump at it. And so that these pieces have been in place for a little while. So I think, you know, that's a that's a good answer. I mean, can you give me somebody else beyond Clemson that you would look at and go, okay, that's a pretty good combination there. I think Notre Dame's got a pretty good trio right now, wouldn't Mm -hmm. you say? I would agree with that. Now, granted, Clark Lea is only entering his second year, I think, as the coordinator. Yeah, Mike Elko left. Yeah, to go to AM. So, so yes. you know, so it's not quite But he had as, a really good first year. Yeah. yeah, it's not quite as a no much of a no brainer as when it was Elko and and Chip Long, but um, that's a pretty good trio. Obviously, you know, you can't you can't throw out an Alabama where it's a uh, constant turnover. I'm trying to think if there's somebody maybe a little more under the radar we're, we're missing not thinking. You know what's here. an interesting one? And I again the head coach is way unproven on this, but coordinator wise is Ole Miss. Uh-huh. Ole Miss has Rich Rod, who I think you and I both agree is a brilliant offensive mind, and Mike McIntyre, who you know wasn't a defensive coordinator really; he was a defensive guy. But I think that would be one that's kind of an interesting one to keep an eye on. I'm not saying it deserves to be anywhere near Clemson. Yeah, I mean that's just... one where the inexperienced coach went all in on getting some uh, experience at the coordinator level. Yeah. You know, it's funny. A couple of years ago, I thought Penn State had a very good tandem. Right. But those guys have since moved on. One of them is now a head coach. But I don't know. I mean, it's 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 really not a lot of guys who jump out for the reason I said at the beginning, which is like the Lincoln Rileys and Gary Patterson who are doing double duty. This could change by next year, Stu. Oh, I think if we're about Michigan, to say the same thing. Michigan. If Michigan and Josh Gaddis have a really good year... Jim Harbaugh is going to vault back into your heart, and we know we really like Don Brown. So that's one, That's my answer to this, is to one, to keep an eye on that, I think could change our opinion by, or at least change your opinion by 2019. But that shows you how quickly, you know, or how much, how fluid these really are. You're talking about a guy who is, has not even yet been an offensive coordinator, and we're kind of starting to put our hopes on that. The next question is from Jim Brighton Booker. From Seattle. Guys, love the pod and your work at The Athletic. Mailbag question. How would you rank coaches based on their program overperforming or underperforming historical expectations slash performance? For example, Jeff Brom is a plus four wins for Purdue question or is Clay Helton a minus three wins for USC? Who are your top and bottom coaches based on this criteria? I like this question, uh, Stu. What do you got? Yeah, and I think that, but I think that kind of that mirrors uh, at least with, when I was doing my top 25 coaches, that's kind of how I approach it, right? Outside of, you know, Alabama, Clemson, maybe the, the, the ones at the very top. Um, actually, yeah, best, I would not group Clemson there. Because, I mean, you're, that's what you're looking for, is coaches who have elevated a program to way above what they're historically. So, is, I mean, I, I would argue Davo is, a, is at least a plus three, if not a plus four, for Clemson, because they weren't going... 12 and 1 for in the decades before he took over as head coach. I'm going to argue, and in full disclosure, I wrote a book with this guy, but Mike Leach is that guy. Washington State has never won 11 games. I mean, Clemson has a ton of resources. They'd won a national title, albeit it was 35 years earlier, but they can get a lot of players there. I'm sorry, Pullman is a much tougher hill to climb. And to me, it's Leach. And there's, you know, you can make other good arguments. I mean, Jeff Brahms is going to be an interesting one for Purdue. But uh, I want to ask, you know, you said... Gary Patterson's okay, this is another my... one, by the way. Yeah, uh, and he's on our list, right? He'd be high on but our list, yeah. Give me the other end of this. You can't shirk out the, the real obligation here. Is Clay Helton the easy answer? Is there another guy yeah. who's underperforming? I mean, so... it's hard to... That list is always going to be the guys who are on the hot seat, and Clay Helton is on the hottest seat, and he's he just went 5-7 and seven at a program where... I think the expectation is double-digit wins every year. So I'm not going to say Chris Ash because Rutgers, there's, there's no <laughs> expectation that they're going to be much better than that. So Clay Helton, it seems like the one and only. Is there somebody else 
you can think of who you're like, oh yeah, that guy's dragging that program down by three wins a year. No, I mean again, uh, Clay Helton had a, had a strong record until last year came around, and you look at it and go, how was that team five and seven? I mean, I think again, this goes into what you said a couple minutes ago about it's very fluid. I don't want to say I like your answer, Chris Ash, but you were thinking differently where it's like, okay, this team, this team, this program's usually not that good, but they shouldn't have been got off. All right, I'll give you and one. I'll give you one. I'm going to say that Lovey Smith is like a minus two for Illinois. Okay. Well, this is a big year for Lovey. He's got transfers coming in and out, and he recruited better, and they were young. So I know Illinois has been it. down for a while, but it's still, I mean, down for Illinois. It should not be two and ten or three. It should be you know, six and six. Uh, yeah. There's no, there's no good reason why they've been this bad for the last few years. Stu and Bruce, as long as Tennessee's O-line is garbage, they're not winning more than seven games. Sam Pittman, the Georgia O-line coach, needs to return. Well, Sam Pittman's buddy is Jim Chaney, but I don't think Georgia's going to let Sam Pittman go. How can college football become relevant to the casual West Coast sports fan? This is this is his question. I'm worried the sport is becoming more regional each year. Thank you from Byron McDermott. Uh, I think that's a legitimate concern. Living out here... There's not a, there's there you start with a baseline of the, a lot of the West Coast not being all that passionate about college football to begin with, and I think that that interest is definitely higher when USC or Oregon somebody out here is uh, a national player and you just don't have that right now. So um, and then you combine that with the concentration right now in the Southeast. I think it's it's a legitimate concern now. I can how much do you, how much, how much, if at all, credence do you put in? I'm going to out you right now, Stu. You're a national college football writer and you don't have the Pac 12 network and you live in the Pac 12 footprint that you cannot get a lot of people in Southern California. I, I'm not one of them, but can't get the Pac 12 network. How much does that factor into it, if at all? By the way, I did get the Pac 12 network up until we moved last summer and now we have direct TV. Which I'm not all that impressed with, to be honest with you. I don't. I don't. Everybody raves about Directv. I guess if you have to have Sunday Ticket, then then you have to have Directv. I, no, I don't know that that's it. I, I he's. T- I think if I understand the question, he's talking about people losing interest in the sport nationally, right? So somebody here in Sunnyvale, California. Oh, I don't care about Alabama, Clemson. I don't need to see those teams playing over and over again. I don't think it's as much about. I can't see. I'm a Stanford fan, and I can't see three of their games because I don't have direct TV. I also would say that you know I continue to say to people that there's a little bit of misplaced angst right now in the Pac-12. There are things that are hugely concerning in terms of the way the conference is run, and I get that, uh, and I don't have easy answers for that. But in terms of the conference just not being that great in football right now, that's going to reverse itself. Like that's this is not some permanent decline. In fact. They're only a few years removed from being a very entertaining and competitive conference. Conferences go up and down. This happens. When you look at the coaches in the conference right now, they have Chris Peterson, David Shaw, Chip Kelly, Mike Leach, Kyle Whittingham. They're going to be fine. It's just they've had a couple rough years. And so uh, I do think USC not being a player contributes to this. But uh, Cristobal gets Oregon rolling if they become a contender again this year. If uh, if Chip Kelly gets UCLA going, you know I'm not that worried about the Pac-12 continuing to be uh, uh, the team, the conference that everybody makes fun of in on the field. I think this. I think it was well said. I do think the biggest factor, which you said, and I think it's it's almost everything related to this, is USC has been down and USC has been spinning its wheels. Now, yeah, I didn't know they won a Rose Bowl in there and Sam Darnold invigorated that program. But between the Sark, you know, Tumult and Lane Kiffin and the sanctions, USC has been has just not been able to get out of its own way since the NCAA got in its way. And to me, that's undermined because USC more than any conference in any Power Five league is the flagship. You know, yeah, Texas is a big deal in the Big 12, and yeah, Ohio State and Michigan are big deals. USC is different compared to, like, there is nothing that rivals USC realistically, on, you know, in the Pac-12. And so that's hurt. That, that, that hurts, but it's not, 
you know, it's not impossible for them to be prominent while USC is down. And I point to, I wrote about this, uh, I don't know, a few months ago. Uh, since I've lived out here, 2013 was probably the high point for the Pac-12. Uh, there was a Thursday night game in November that year where Stanford, Oregon was number one in the country and they came to Stanford and Stanford beat them. Uh, all of our national media colleagues were here. Uh, UCLA was very highly ranked that year with Brett Hundley. Uh, Washington with Sark was starting to get good. Now, there, there, there were reasons to watch the Pac-12 every week that year, and that also happened to be the year Lane Kiffin got fired on the tarmac. So uh, it's not like USC was was Pete Carroll era USC at that point. Yeah, it's a fascinating it's a fascinating dynamic. Bruce, I just want to give a quick shout out to Sam and Adam Engelbert, who wrote in from Houston and Tempe, Arizona, and and sent me a copy of a research paper they did in 2015. That included a lot of references to bowls, bowls, and tattered souls. Their question, though, is very long, and it basically just amounts to why does the SEC get to play only eight conference games while others play nine? And uh, that's an eternal question that has no great answer to it. It's just the way things are in college football right now, and it's not going to be changing anytime soon. But thank you for writing in, guys. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Next week, I hope we will be doing this together in person because we will be in Phoenix for the annual, what do you call it, gathering? Conference gathering, yeah. All the leagues, except for the SEC and the ACC, will be there. Everybody else has their meetings there, and they play a lot of golf and, and have fancy receptions and just basically look for an excuse to be in Arizona at a nice time of year there. And we're not, um, we're not <laughs> saying we aren't doing the same thing. All right, we'll see you next time. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to The Audible on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review while you're at it. It helps get the word out. Thanks to Trader Joe's for being our presenting sponsor. Our producer is Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes and Spotify. Follow me, Stu, at... SL Mandel on Twitter and Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB and subscribe to The Athletic. If you haven't done so already, you can try it for free, seven-day free trial at theathletic.com slash free trial. So come on, get over here. Ah, yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We'll talk about